Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, after having crawled through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood. And today we're doing something special. We're bringing you an extra episode to address some lingering questions with our February co-host, Tori Carpenter. We have a returning guest here to talk with us, and I'm really excited about the conversation we're about to have. And friend, I'm also excited that you're listening in for season four, where I'm inviting co-hosts and guests on to share their stories, and also asking guests to address some of my co-hosts' honest questions throughout the month. So I want to start today by welcoming back our co-host this month, Tori Carpenter. Tori, I can't believe we're almost at the end of the month. I know. This has been so fun. I don't want to be over. (laughs) I know. I think at the end of the year, we're just going to have to have like a follow-up episode like during December. Sounds good. Yeah. (laughs) And you and I still need to record that bonus episode for Patreon. So we still have one more, one more together. Great which will be really special. Um, so uh, if you're listening to this um, and you haven't already listened to the previous episodes with Tori as she shared some of her personal story and we've talked with different guests about questions she has on um, Christianity and the story that she has on the podcast, I encourage you to please go back and take a listen to those episodes. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. And also, friend, You may have noticed that we keep mentioning Patreon as a way to support what we're doing here on the podcast each month. And I'm not just doing that to be annoying. (laughs) This week, we'll be releasing one final episode with Tori, a gift to our Patreon supporters. Um, That episode is kind of a wrap-up episode with just her and me as we process the journey we've been on together. It's going to be a really special conversation. So I encourage you to please check out more on how to access that over on findingsomethingreal.com and just click on support. Now today, we are excited to welcome back a very special guest. He was on this podcast almost a year ago. Uh, in fact, my um, Italian exchange daughter, who Um, spoiler alert, is going to be our March co-host. She was on this podcast as well when uh, we interviewed this guest. He's a former agnostic who has an incredible story of God meeting him where he was at. That was 25 plus years ago, and he now loves to talk with people not only about his passion for Jesus Christ, but also about reasons for that faith. He has a master's degree in Christian apologetics, and I'm excited to welcome back our guest, Alan Crostick. Alan, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. 
Oh, I'm excited. What have you been up to this past year? It's been almost a year oh, since wow. you've been on here. Well, since with the pandemic, I haven't really been up to too too much, to be honest. <laughs> um, just, yeah, just, just, just working remotely and virtually everything is by Zoom now. So I think uh, that's pretty much my life. Um, Alan, one thing that I want to encourage people who are listening to do is to listen to the first episode that we did with um, back in April. You shared your testimony, how you came to the Lord. It was a super incredible story. Um, and Tori, if you haven't listened to that episode, I just encourage you to do that too, because it puts in context a lot of what I think you're going to share today. And, and you're welcome to share it again, Alan, if you want. But one thing um, that I really admire about you is that um, even though even after having a spiritual experience where God, you, <laughs> it was really hard for you to deny that God met you, um, you, you were still skeptical, but you didn't stay in that skepticism. You actively searched for answers. You actively were looking for something to believe in. And I'm just wondering, um, I guess to start us off, why? Why do you think you kept on looking instead of staying in a place where I think a lot of people are comfortable staying now, which is, I just don't know. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a big time second guesser. I second guess everything. <laughs> there is some pros to that. There's some cons to that. Because on a lot of things in life, it really, it really causes some uh, decision paralysis on my part. But this was something I just had to know. Um, mm. I didn't know how long it would take me to reach a conclusion or if I ever would. Um, but I, th there was something that there was something C.S. Lewis once said that I, I do very much agree with, you know, and he says, he was talking about, he says, you know, don't, he says, I don't think people ever understood. He says, people were trying to come to me asking me to believe in Christianity because it's good. I don't give a rip about whether it's good. I only care <laughs> about whether it's true, because here's mm -hmm. the thing. If it's false, it's of zero importance, none. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is just moderately important. So, you know, when growing up, when I hear people say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't take it that seriously. I, I remember thinking, I don't really think you've thought this through. Um, <laughs> I don't know what could be more important than that, if it's true. Um, <clears throat> so it was, a, it was a struggle for me. It was a, it was, it was a back and forth. Um, but, uh, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, I just, it was just something I had to know. I had to know, I had to just know what the truth was. Um, mm. A lot of people have that view nowadays. It seems like uh, it's not, <laughs> I'll figure it out someday kind of thing. So what do you say to somebody who, who is in that place? Who's kind of like, you know what, uh, maybe it is, maybe it's not. I'll find out someday uh, when I die, yeah. you know, what I believe. <laughs> yeah. Well, for, for that, <clears throat> I would actually, um, I, I actually would point them of all people to, to, to Socrates, believe it or not. You're probably thinking, where are you going with this? Um, well, <laughs> I trust you. You go ahead. <laughs> one of the things, free reign. One of the things that that, that Socrates said, you know, on the lips of Plato, was the unexamined life is not worth living. And I agree with that. But how many people do you know examine their own lives? Um, that is you know, so and, weird. and and I remember, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and here's the thing, and and even as a believer now. And one of the things I'll, I'll teach with, uh, teach on a lot of times is doubt and the three different species of doubt, factual, emotional, and volitional doubt, uh, was something I learned when I was at, uh, at, at Talbot uh, through one of Gary Habermas's classes. And I didn't even really feel like it was something I really needed to take because doubt per se wasn't what I was really struggling with at that time, but I learned so much from it. 
Um, mm. You know, and I, I like how I've heard some people say it, a faith without doubts is like a body without antibodies in it. People who mm. blithely go throughout their lives, either too busy or indifferent to ask themselves the hard questions about why they believe as they do, are gonna find themselves absolutely defenseless when either A, tragedy hits, and it's just a matter of time before that happens, or B, when they just find themselves being asked questions by a smart skeptic. You know, um, and I remember Keller talking about this. A person can almost lose their faith overnight if they have not wrestled long and hard with their doubts, which should only be discarded after careful reflection. And really, if you think about it, I mean, all your doubts, every doubt is really just a set of alternate beliefs. You can't doubt one belief except from a position of faith in some other belief. Um, mm. That's how that works. And so you, you hear like the, 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 the stock objections. Right. You know, people saying, I can't believe in Christianity because there can't just be one true religion. We have to realize that that statement itself is a leap of faith. I mean, on what mm -hmm. basis do you believe that? I mean, it's not a necessary truth on par with two plus two equals four. It's not a universal truth. Everyone accepts. If you went to the Middle East and said that they'd raise their eyebrows at you and say, why not? And it's not a truth that can be empirically verified either. So the only reason that in that scenario, someone would be rejecting belief A of Christianity is because they hold the unprovable belief B that there just can't be one true religion. Um, mm. But it's a leap. And so many of the things that even the objections that we offer um, are based upon unproven assumptions like that, that no one challenges. You know, so the deal is sometimes like when I talk to people and they say, you know, like, I feel like I doubt too much. And I'm like, no. The problem is you don't doubt enough. <laughs> doubt your doubts. Don't stop there. You know, so it I'm means if you're skeptical, we should be skeptical of our own skepticism. <laughs> what did you say, Tori? I said, wow, then I'm doing everything right. <laughs> you may be. For all I know, maybe yeah. you are. Um, but I, I, the thing is, I mean, and I know a lot of people, especially in the church, grow up with this idea that, you know, I shouldn't ask questions. That's unbelief. So what's the alternative? Keep it in my heart mm. where what? God won't know? Is that the idea? You know, so, and I think sometimes people get this because, you know, we, we, read, we read the scriptures. You know, we, for example, in the Gospels, you have the, the, the religious leaders and the Sadducees and so forth coming up to Jesus and saying, give us a sign that we know that to prove that you are who you say you are. And Jesus is dismissive toward it and says, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. Nevertheless, you will get a sign, the, the sign of Jonah. And by that, he was referring to, you know, him being, you know, dead, buried in the earth for three days and then resurrecting. But the other thing is that a lot of people miss is, um, and I, I may have talked about this on our last episode. You I, did, I but remember. it's great. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> in a story where, where Jesus is first coming on the scene, he's preaching in the synagogues, John the Baptist has mm -hmm. been taken prisoner by Herod, right? And he doesn't know it yet, but he's pretty much on his deathbed, right? He's going to be beheaded soon. But as he's in prison, he's having doubts. He's thinking, you know, like the, the Messiah comes, I shouldn't be, you shouldn't be locked up in prison awaiting your death. What, what's going on here? So he sends two of his disciples to go speak to Jesus. And they come to Jesus and they say, you know, what John wants to know, are you the one who is to come? Or should we be expecting someone else? Ouch. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, here's John the Baptist, who's supposed to be the forerunner to the Messiah, right? His herald, so to speak. 
you know, and he's not only doubting him, but saying, should we expect someone else? You know, there's this guy down the street named Buddha, right? Is he the one I'm looking for? I mean, you know, and notice what Jesus says to them. He says to him, he doesn't, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't say, come on, get a hold of yourself. You know better than this. He says, go tell John what you see and hear. And um, he says something to the effect, you know, the blind see, the dead are raised, uh, the lame walk, the deaf hear. Blessed is he who was not offended on account of me. And then he sends the disciples away. And keep in mind, while the disciples are on their way to John, John is still doubting. Jesus says to the crowd, who did you come to see? You know, and he says, you know, of no one born of women is anyone greater than John. Hmm. He's saying that why John is still doubting. Right. And so we have this idea that I can't ask questions and I can't doubt. God understands your questions. He understands your doubts. Um, You know, and, um, you know, so that would, that would, that that would, that would be a good example, I guess, of, you know, this idea that, you know, you're not supposed to ask questions. It's just, it's just a falsehood. Um, Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll even talk to people. I'll notice that they haven't heard anybody tell them that it's just something they kind of, inherently think everybody thinks you know I'll, I'll talk to like people who are I, I, much like I feel like sometimes when I talk to someone who's been divorced they feel like everyone's judging them and they have this scarlet letter on their chest and I'm just thinking I've never heard anybody ever say anything about that and I sometimes wonder are you actually hearing people say that or mm-hmm. is that something you're self-inflicting you know assuming people think that and I'm sure there's people out there that say something but you know um anyway I'll stop there that's all i'm gonna say about doubts for right now oh man so interesting so one final thing that i wanted to say and then i'm gonna let tori take this away because she knows what's lingering sure (laughs) uh for her and uh, we've covered a lot of ground uh over the last few weeks but um something you had said last time you were on here alan um you touched on apologetics and it kind of goes into what you just were talking about Um, And you kind of, uh, you gently um, touched on something that I've actually heard, that I have heard um, from other Christian leaders, which is apologetics is sometimes considered like, (laughs) like, why do we need that kind of thing, right? Because people don't come to Christ that way. Uh, they come, you know, because of maybe the Holy, the Holy Spirit draws them and, and which is true, but you know, like you don't have to go through reasons and, and talk with people through their doubts because, uh, you know, God can change a heart like that. So, um, you had said some things about why you, uh, believe apologetics is so important. And I just want you to share that real quick as we kind of jump into some deep, uh, topics here. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, and it's sad because sometimes some of my biggest opponents are not unbelievers, they're believers. Like yeah. you said, this idea of arguments don't save people. The Holy Spirit saves people. Well, yeah, the Holy Spirit does save people, but he uses means to do that. He uses the means of preaching, teaching, argumentation, and persuasion. And if you don't see that, you're reading a very different Bible from the one that I'm reading. Um, you had many places where Jesus says, you know, if you don't believe what I say, at least believe on the sake of the miracles I do. Believe on the sake of the evidence, right? Um, if you don't believe for my word's sake, at least believe on, the, on my work's sake. You know, when you have Paul going into the different synagogues and speaking with people, going to Mars Hill and reasoning with them and showing them that Jesus had to be the Messiah. 
And not only that, but it's even a command. I mean, I'm thinking 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have for anyone who asks, but mm -hmm. to do this with gentleness and respect. So the thing is, people are assuming, you know, hey, you can't argue someone into the kingdom. Well, you can't love someone to the kingdom either. Should I stop loving them? <laughs> I mean, really? Um, mm -hmm. I, 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 just, I, I don't see any biblical basis for that. It may be true. You know, God is a vital ingredient. And without him, you know, nothing's going to work. But with, with him, all sorts of things will work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and by the way, without the Holy Spirit's work, even preaching the gospel will not work if the Holy Spirit's mm -hmm. not in it. So I, I, I just, I, I don't buy that, that you can't, um, you know, give people good reasons. And on that basis, that's how I came. So you can't tell me that. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's really important. Um, so when Tori and I first started talking together, she brought up uh, a, a lot of questions, which I know you're familiar with, Alan. Um, uh, the authority of the Bible, which we've talked about uh, quite a bit. And <laughs> I think for me, I keep going back to it too, like directing it that way, because I think without the authority of the Bible, it's a house of cards. Like if you don't believe that the Bible is a place that you can find answers, it's, I mean, what do you have? Um, we talked about the sin nature of human beings and our need for a savior. We haven't talked about that as in depth as I think would be like awesome to talk about. Um, but I'm going to let Tori decide on that, um, who Jesus is and why he came, the atonement hell and eternal conscious torment. We did talk a little bit about that with Casey Lander, which I think was really interesting. And we've talked quite a bit about the hypocrisy of Christians. Um, Tori, if there's any more or some that I just mentioned that uh, you are just, that are still like heavy, Alan is a great resource and I know he's here to talk to you. So I'm going to let you be the co-host. It's okay. a whole lot of pressure there, right? All right, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you knew it was coming. I guess I think we didn't. Uh, we've obviously touched on all those topics. One I I still feel like I'm curious about is um, the idea that like we're inherently bad. I don't feel like like I don't really buy into that, and I know that that goes against uh, like Christian theology. Like I definitely know that, but to me, I feel like uh, I think I mentioned this in an earlier podcast. I don't like God, if Jesus is God, the son of God, and he is who he said he is, then he couldn't become anything that's bad. And he became human. So this idea that like, we're totally wicked and depraved and like inherently bad doesn't really make sense to me. And then when I look at like an, a sweet little infant that's brought into the world, like to me, that's just like the perfection of humanity and beauty and I don't think there's anything bad about that. So I struggle. I still feel like I, I still struggle with that. I understand that. Let me, um, let me ask some follow-up questions just to make sure so I can kind of understand where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. um, when you say uh, uh, people are inherently bad, um, how do you understand that? Do you mean like they're utterly bad and capable of any good whatsoever? Uh, yeah. Like, so, I mean, I grew up Baptist, pretty fundamental Baptist, and I grew up sure. with the tulip doctrines that were totally depraved, and um, like there's nothing good in me. Like I heard right. that so much growing up. There's nothing good in me. So, um, 
here's the thing. A lot of times when people, and I'm, I'm not a Calvinist, by the way. Um, I know <laughs> people, when they talk about total depravity, it, but it's not really a Calvinist doctrine. Arminians, that's the only doctrine Arminius and Calvinists agreed on, I think, um, was total depravity. But by total depravity, someone doesn't mean utter depravity, that you're as sinful as you could possibly be and there's no good in you whatsoever. Um, what it does mean is that sin has affected every aspect of our being that we're tainted in some way, but that's perfectly compatible with you being a person who's been designed with dignity. I mean, that's what God did. When he created mankind, he said, let us create mankind in our image. And we can talk about the, uh, the plural usage there if you want to go into that. But, um, but the idea is, um, it's when God sat down to create us, it's not like he says, I think I want to create a bunch of dirty sinners. That's, <laughs> that's not the idea, right? So, and plus it should also tell us something because if the Christian story is true, God himself in the person of Jesus Christ came and gave himself and suffered for a, on our behalf in a way I will never understand. And if that doesn't speak to the type of worth that we have to him, I don't know what does, right? So you being able to do, being a person of worth, being a person of, of inner beauty and so forth is perfectly compatible also with the idea of that we're all tainted by sin. I, I guess my follow-up question would be is once you understand depravity that way, once you understand man's sinful nature in that sense, here's the hard part I have a hard time with. And it's not me even appealing to scripture. Um, it's me looking at history which Hegel calls the great slaughter bench is how can one look at that and even look at a lot of things in our world today and come around and come back and think there's not something inherently messed up about mankind. Um, just to give you some examples. I mean, I'll, I'll touch on some, I mean, we go throughout history. Let's just take from like the 1900s and onward. We can probably really get into it if we go even further than that. <laughs> but I mean, we think of the Jewish Holocaust where 6 million Jews were killed. A lot of people don't realize that the same number of uh, Ukrainians and gypsies and handicapped people were also killed as well. Uh, we know there were like 42,000 camps um, today. And that seems like that's almost impossible, but a lot of them had satellite camps. And what a lot of them did back then, you had like 2,000 people who would be cremated in the, uh, or who burnt to death in the crematorium. Um, you would have organizations that where they would send the Jews to do their slave work for them, organizations like BMW, Volkswagen, um, uh, the Bayer Corporation. By the way, it was the Bayer Corporation that supplied the Zyklon B gas that killed all the Jews. Um, you have them being hurled into sweltering rail cars where hundreds died in a day where they have to stand up and defecate on themselves and urinate. Um, you know, you have, you have in the Soviet Union, um, where between, I think it was between like 1917 and 1989, you had something like 26 million people were killed. Um, you also have where the Soviets uh, back in the day to quell uh, Ukrainian nationalism, where they killed, uh, I wanna say it was like 300,000 people. No, is that it? Might, no, that was when they, they starved to death five to seven million people, peasants that way. You have in Japan, um, you know, in the thirties, um, where you can read about in the book by Iris Chang, The Rape of Nanking, um, where soldiers came and raped and tortured and killed. Um, that was the 300,000, I believe, Chinese people. I have all these numbers swimming in my head. Um, 
And many of them went beyond that. They would have contests where they would cut up Chinese men with their bayonets and decap have decap decapitation contests. You would have many of them that would rape, that's estimated to have raped somewhere between 20 and 80,000 women. And many of them, and this is gonna sound harsh, but I, I think it almost needs to be said to underscore just how depraved this is. Many of them would go to further reaches and disembowel them, slice off their breasts, nail them alive to walls, force fathers to wipe their, uh, rape their daughters while the rest of the family watched. Um, on and on and on I can go. Um, I mean, this is just tipping the tip of the iceberg. Um, so much so like in the 1960s, 1960 and 1963, you have what's called the Stanley Milgram experiments. Have you, are you familiar with these? No, I don't think so. It was a psychologist named Stanley Milgram conducted these at Yale University. And it was kind of to understand why people would do these atrocities. See, the idea is it, it, every genocide researcher, and I remember one of the classes I took at Talbot was through Clay Jones. And it was absolutely fascinating on you know, the idea, why does God allow evil? And he said, one of the things he did for years is he studied genocide because he didn't want anybody to think that he just swiped the most horrendous evils under the rug. And he talks about, he says, every genocide purser he, he has read. And I mean, I've read some, but he's read a lot. Um, every genocide person he's read, and it's been a lot of them, and every genocide victim to a person comes to the conclusion that it's not just a few people here and there that do these great evils. It's the average person that commits genocide. On and on and on, you will find that conclusion. And this isn't by pastors, theologians, or any ecclesial authority. These are secular, the, uh, secular historians and researchers. But one of the things that Stanley Milgram did is they did this study and they put an advertising in the newspaper asking for volunteers and they would come to the university to Yale under the pretense, under the understanding that they were just gonna take place in some traditional study about learning. And they would flip a coin and one of them would choose to have the role of, of teacher and one would just choo choose the role of learner. The teacher would give the instructions. The learner um, would have to remember word pairs and what they would have the learner do is they would strap the learner to a chair with electrodes attached to the wrist. Then they would tell the teacher who was behind the glass um, that whenever they get something wrong, you're gonna use this uh, shock generator box to zap them with electricity. And they allowed the, the teacher, the person playing the teacher to feel a real 45 volt of that electricity to feel that the shock was real. Now, what the teacher didn't know is that the learner was actually a paid actor. They weren't really being shocked, but they would tell the person playing the teacher each time they got it wrong, shock them. And the dial on the generator went from 15 volts all the way up to 450 volts from slightly dangerous to dangerous to lethal. And the person in the chair would start screaming, begging to stop. I mean, for all the other person knows this was real and 65% of the people administered all the shocks they were told to just because they were told to. Um, and it didn't make any difference between if whether it was men or women. Uh, they did this in 1960 and 1963. They tried it again in Munich, Germany, Munich, West Germany in 1970. Um, this time 85% of the participants administered the maximum shock. And it caused the researcher said, you know, we've always wondered, how does this happen? 
you know, with this, this has taught us what we've seen in the history books, you know, that people will, under the most banal and superficial rationale, inflict the most serious evils. Um, we've learned it in the history books. Looks like now we've learned it in the laboratory. Um, you know, Christopher Browning's book, it's a great book, but oh my God, it's depressing. It's called um, Ordinary Men, uh, the Reserve P Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. And um, that was one of the books that we were required to read. And after reading that, you just come away with a very low opinion of mankind. Um, Browning comes to the conclusion, I could have been the torturer or the victim. They were both human. Um, you, you keep hearing it over and over. And who was it? Um, Solzhenitsyn um, with his book that I'm forgetting right now because I'm just blanking out. But he comes to the conclusion, you know, like, who is this wolf tribe? What are we doing? You know, we wondered who is it that per perpetuates genocide? I'll tell you who it is. We know who it is. It's you and I. He says, if I was born in different circumstances, I could have been the guard at Auschwitz. I could have been the torturer. And one of the things that, you know, I think is good to ask ourselves, you know, and, I, and Clay asked this to our class. He says, he poses a good question. Ask yourself this. If I wasn't a believer, if I was born in a different time, a different place, doesn't seem very possible that I could have been the guard at Auschwitz, that I could have been a torturer, that I could have done these things, put in the right circumstances. And of course, you know, I, I, I'm inclined to think many of us would say yes. But even for those who'd say no, I have to say, you know, I ask what logical or evidential reason do you have to think that wouldn't be the case? Unless you think that you're somehow inherently better than those other people. But the second point is, if that's the case for those who say yes, I got to remind you that the idea that you're innately better is always the father of genocide. <laughs> um, it just seems like we're Auschwitz enabled like that. So when it comes to the idea of original sin, that mankind is messed up, that's like the only doctrine of Christianity that I think we got strong empirical data for. It's the most obvious thing about us. Um, and I, I guess that would be my question. After looking at that, after looking at history and even what's going on in our world, even right now, I don't know how I can come to the conclusion that we're inherently good as much as I like the idea. The evidence just doesn't seem to bear it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I don't really have anything to say to that. I mean, you obviously make very strong points. Well, I, I think it's a, well, you say nothing to say, but let me just ask you, on the basis of that, how could you come to a different conclusion? And I don't mean that as a gotcha moment. I really just want to understand where you're coming from, because it almost seemed that I would have to completely go against all the evidence. And if that's not evidence for that, conclusion, my goodness, what would be? I, I, I just think that like, when I look at like the innocence of a child or the beauty of how a father loves his daughter or a mother loves her son, um, when I think about how Jesus became human, it just makes me wonder, but I mean, obviously I don't, like you have very strong evidence, so. I obviously can't go against that. And again, I don't think this is incompatible with everything you're saying. The idea that sin has radically corrupted every aspect of our being, 
doesn't mean that we're not capable of tremendous goodness and kindness. One of the uh, doctrines of original sin is that in the fall, the image of God has been defaced, but it hasn't been erased. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. So then like, so then explain Jesus to me because he was human. So he just yeah. sin just didn't affect him. Yes. He was God. Jesus was human and he did inherit our nature. Um, and I think the only thing that allowed him to get over our nature was his divine nature intertwined with it. But the fact that Jesus did take on humanity should tell you something else. And it should, it should prove to you that human beings are not intrinsically awful. That's not God, how God made us. This is something that has tainted us, but we're still, we're, there's still tremendous worth. Um, I'm just wondering, um, I, I hear what Tori's saying about the innocence of a baby, right? And, and here's God, uh, you know, Jesus, like becoming flesh for us, um, but he wasn't sin. How was that different? How was that a different thing? Is that, is that kind of where you're going, Tori? Can yeah, I ask that? Or yeah, is that... it is kind of where I'm going. And then I also wonder, yeah. like, if we're like terrible people who commit grave genocide, then and the only reason that, like, I, I guess this is like my conflict. So, like, if we're if everything that you're saying is true, and like we are we have this like terrible sin nature and the only reason Jesus didn't have that and Jesus didn't sin was because he was God. That doesn't give me any hope because I'm not God. So yeah, it makes me just think I want to be bad forever. And I'm just honestly like, it makes me feel like a piece of shit. And it makes me feel like well, Jesus was perfect because he was God. And like, yeah, he died for me. Great. But like, what does that do for me? I'm just always going to be a piece of shit. And like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm that bad, but like, I hear things like this and I'm like, well, maybe I am. So well, it's just hard for me, I guess. Let me ask you this. Mm. Um, Great question, Tori. Yeah. If you had a daughter, say you're a mom, I know you're not a mom, but if you had a daughter and let's say your daughter did something to mess her life up, right? let's say she got strung out on drugs or whatever. She's like, I can't, I can't get this right. Do you see, I'll, 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 I'll modify the, the language a little bit. Would you see her as a piece of crap? <laughs> no. Because I wouldn't. I don't think I would. I mean, granted, I know that she's messed up her life, but I still love her and she would still have worth to me. Um, and I would do everything I could to try to save her. Um, you know, and, and one of the things is, is, no, we can't save ourselves. We have a debt that we can't pay. And that was like, that, that was pretty much kind of what Jesus did. It would, it would be something like this. I, I remember Nabil used this example in his book. Nabil Qureshi. Yeah, Nabil Qureshi, who I, I, I still love when I catch old speeches from him. But, um, he says it would be uh, analogous to like, say, say you have a father who owns a store and he has a son who steals from the store. Maybe it's to go buy drugs. Maybe it's to, to pay off a debt, whatever it may be. And then say later, the son comes back and he's sorry for what he did. It's the father's right to forgive him if he wants to. Right. But 
everything wouldn't be settled yet, right? Accounts would still need to be balanced. Someone needs to take the hit for the stolen goods. Now it's within the father's right to pay for those goods himself on his son's behalf from his own account. Um, and I think that's what God does for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, it's the idea of, I love you so much, and this is a debt that you can't pay. I'm going to do it for you because I know you can't be perfect, but that's okay because I'm going to do this. And now I'm going to live inside of you. And now I'm going to help you. And one day you will be glorified and you will be wiped clean completely. We already are legally speaking, right? He declares us that way, but this life that we're going through now is to kind of use a religious term we're kind of going through the sanctification process. We're in the process of being made holy and being more and more like Jesus. Um, when he came and died for us, we're saved from sin's dominion, but we're not saved from its influence. You and I are going to struggle with sin's influence until the day we die. Um, but what he comes and saves us from is so that we don't walk according to sin's dominion anymore, this flagrantly lead a lifestyle, you know, of sin. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I think, I think it does. What do you do with the feeling like crap? <laughs> like I, I heard, I had a pastor on here that I've referenced quite a few times because the way he shared the gospel was just so beautiful. But one of the things that he says almost every Sunday, because I've been listening to some of his sermons, he says, you are infinitely worse than you could ever imagine. Ah, Keller. And you are, uh, it, maybe it is Keller, yeah. but this is uh, Josh White out of Portland. Yeah. He says, uh, you are infinitely worse than you could ever imagine. And you are infinitely more loved than you could ever imagine. Yeah. So how do you balance... Um, because I loved how you pointed out that that where Tori's at, where she sees herself as like <laughs> when she's not embracing uh, the Christian beliefs that she grew up with, she's like, actually, I'm I was designed like really well. Like God created me with some really special gifts, and I'm valued and loved and cherished. How do you reconcile that with what Jesus did? within nature. How do you put all that together, Alan? I think a big part of it is where am I deriving my sense of worth? Am I deriving it from my moral performance or am I deriving it from God's love for me? If my idea of my own worth is tied up into how well I can morally perform, then I can understand feeling like crap. Right. Um, and that's the religious mindset. If you've grown up into extremely legalistic atmospheres and things of that nature, you're probably going to be struggling with that, right? Um, but see, here's the, here's the great thing about the gospel. With the gospel, God's grace doesn't come to those who morally outperform others. That's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees could never see it, right? God's grace comes to those who recognize their failure to perform um, and recognize their need for a savior. And so for that reason, um, I may very well find that my unbelieving friend in many ways is nicer, kinder, maybe in a lot of ways better than I am. Um, We've talked about that on here. Yeah, but that's, that's not who God's grace comes yeah. to. So when I give my life to Christ, my motivation 
for trying to live a good life is completely different from what it was before. It's not the idea of I obey, therefore God accepts me. Rather, it's the idea God accepts me, therefore I obey. I already know he accepts me and he loves me as I am, not as I should be because I'm never going to be as I should be, at least not in this life. But I know that he loves me and what he's done for me makes me want to live this way in gratitude to him. I'm going to mess up and that's fine, but I want to show him my loyalty as best I can. But it's not me deriving my worth from my moral performance. You know, I know, um, uh, speaking of Keller, um, one of the things, he has a, a great book, um, I think it's called Counterfeit Gods, but he talks about what is an idol. And an idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, identity, or meaning in life. And one way you can tell what your idol is, is if that gets taken away or if it gets whatever, you know, what kind of response does that elicit from you? You know, um, so when I miss the mark, so to speak, because that's, that's what sin is. My first reaction, of course, is to feel sorry for it. I feel bad about it. Um, there's guilt, but I also realize, God, this is why you came in a person of Jesus Christ and you died for me. I am sorry. Please forgive me. I'm going to forget about what's behind and press on for what's ahead. And that's basically what Paul says. And I think that's the right attitude to have. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I guess you're just giving me a lot to think about. I, I think for me, at least, uh, I did live like so much of my life feeling like I was just a piece of crap and worthless. And then after my dad's death, it was even worse. Uh, I think for me, especially like in the last, what, 15 months, like healing, like for me has been recognizing that I am, uh, like, I feel like I'm kind because God is kind and I'm created in his image. And I feel like I have learned to heal and transform pain because God is the healer. And I think that like healing for me has been discovering all the things in me that are like God, like, like I, I believe fundamentally that I am I'm created in the image and the likeness of God. So when I look at like how much I love my friends and the people who like showed up for me, I love them because God loves them. And like, I feel like I'm a loyal friend because God is loyal to me. And so I guess, uh, gosh, I don't know why this is making me emotional, but I, I feel like for, for me, healing came when I remembered that I'm created in his image. Healing for me came when I remembered that I'm not a piece of crap, that I'm infinitely beautiful because I am, because I exist, I exist because he desired me. Yeah. Healing didn't come for me with the message of you're wicked and deceitful above all things and you need to say it you're like I know that's probably helped some people but it didn't help me so I guess 
I mean, obviously you're making valid points and you're giving me a lot to think about. And I don't know what the, I don't know what's right. I guess I'm still searching, but yeah, I think for me, transformation really came when I realized and when I really remembered, like I am created in the image and the likeness of God. Yeah. I, I want to affirm what you're saying right now. And I am so sorry that you had to go through that. I, I listened to your podcast episode and not only, not only is it just bad enough to have to endure what you endured with your father and that tragedy, but even the, for lack of a better way of putting the Job's comforts that came into your life. Um, I'm just so sorry. Um, having said that, what you're talking about, you know, like when you started to see your own self-worth, yes, that's a truism. That's, that is part of the Christian message. And if you were being brought up to think otherwise, whether that was someone else's fault or something that you were just understanding on your own, whatever, that's not part of the Christian message. So yeah, I'm sure that did bring freedom. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this. Um, one of the things that uh, I learned when I took Habermas's class years ago on doubt, you know, he talked about different types of doubt. There's factual, emotional, and volitional doubt. And we was talking about factual doubt. He says, factual doubt accounts for about 15% of what people experience. It's the least common type of doubt where someone, it's solved just by a good dose of the evidence. And that's it. You know, there's no pain with it. It's painless. There's no, there's no struggle. You're like, hey, I've always wondered about this. What about that? Okay, great, awesome. That's wonderful. And they go away. The biggest thing that factual doubters sometimes get messed up on is uh, getting obsessed with pseudo problems, um, like peripheral issues that aren't core issues. Like, well, what do you think about the age of the earth? Is it young or is it new? What about, uh, what about, um, what about how uh, penal substitutionary atonement? What's the right theory of atonement? Stuff like that. These are pseudo issues. <laughs> They're not salvation issues, right? And people get bogged down about that. He'll sometimes say, you know, you know why most people leave the church? Young people, they go to college. Someone tells them the earth wasn't created in six days, if that's how they see it. Or they tell them the Bible wasn't inerrant. He says, and sometimes to show them the force or lack of force of that, I'll say, and? You know, and uh, well, what do you mean, and? Does it follow that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Well, yeah, no. No, it doesn't. That's why one of the, I don't know if what you guys have talked about in the past, one of the ways that I came to understand and believe that the resurrection happened was through what was called the minimal fact method. The idea that if the New Testament is inerrant, yes, of course it follows Jesus rose from the dead. But let's assume the New Testament's not inerrant. Let's assume that it's a good bo a book of ethics and you know gives some good historical data. I can still show that Jesus rose from the dead. What about if it's not inerrant, it's not even reliable? Let's say it has more falsehood in it than fact. I can still show that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, now, granted, after showing that, then you can kind of come through the back door, as it were, and build all that back up and see where it is reliable. But most historians don't go that route. But many people get hung up on pseudo problems. But here's the deal. You talked about a lot of people, if their questions aren't answered, or maybe if it's not even, a, not, maybe it's not even brought about by previous questions. But some people will go through what's called emotional doubt. And that's the most common type. 75 to 80% of people out there suffer from emotional doubt. And it's immune to the evidence. Um, 
but emotional doubters often masquerade as factual doubters because um, I ask the same type of questions. How do I know? How do I know Jesus raised from the dead? How do I know the Bible is reliable or whatever? Um, but they're asking it for different reasons. Um, you know, and one of the, uh, uh, one of the, two of the, uh, two of the ingredients of emotional doubt is one, um, there's a lot of pain involved. And two, it's typically characterized by people asking what if type of questions. That question can be asked directly, it can be implied, or it can be felt. You know, and it kind of, it kind of talks about the example, you know, like it says, let's say I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus and someone comes up and says, what if we're wrong? Okay, well, what do you mean? I mean, what if we're wrong? I mean, we, I, we live in a big world, you know, I mean, I, I was born in the US at this cultural time in this place. If I was born in the Middle East, I would probably believe something different. What if we're wrong? Well, okay, you know, this would be an ideal case, go through it, but let me ask you this. Um, where are you on the uh, divinity of Jesus? Where are you on that? Yeah, I, I, I see that. I, I get the historical reasons why I can trust that, sure. All right. And you believe in the death of Jesus? Yeah, that's about as certain as a historical fact you can get. <laughs> what about the resurrection? I'm not saying I don't have questions, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's very compelling, very compelling. Okay, what, why are we talking? Because I just sometimes wonder what if. And he says, so sometimes to show them the force of that objection or show them the lack of it, I'll, you know, when they say, what if we're wrong? He'll say, he'll ask, what if we're right? Hmm. Like, well, no, 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 I mean, I mean it, what if we're wrong? He goes, no, I mean it, what if we're right? He says, I'm not gonna keep giving you all the evidence in the world if you're just gonna what if it out of existence. Give me, re do you have any reasons? It's like, no. But, and I don't, I don't know how much of your doubt might fall in that category or not. I think we're all a blend, all of us. But that's not really the main reason I'm even bringing up emotional doubt. One of the ways that you treat it, and it doesn't necessarily even have to apply to doubt per se, but even any negative emotional upheaval you're dealing with in your life. One of the things he talked about was a psychologist who uh, came up with something called, his name was, was Albert Ellis. Albert Ellis was not a friend to Christians, but he came up with something called the ABC method, um, which aligns really well with biblical teachings as it, as, it, as, as it turns out. But what he says is this, he says, where people go wrong is they think A's cause C's. He says, and they don't. A's don't cause C's. Well, what is an A and what is a C? Well, A is what you call an activating event. It's what happens to you in life, right? And C's stand for the consequences. He says, so a lot of people assume life works like this, activating event, I just got a divorce. It might, that's my A, my C, therefore I'm miserable. Life stinks. Or I just failed my test. Here's my C, life stinks. Or you don't know what kind of spouse I have, life stinks or whatever. He says, that's not true because generally speaking, A's don't cause C's because in the middle, middle of A's and C's are B's. And B's stand for your beliefs about the A's. And his point was, it's not what happens in life that makes you feel and think the way you do. It's how you download it. Put another way, it's what you tell yourself about what happens to you in life that makes you feel the way that you do. And almost any psychologist would be able to kind of tell you the same thing. But the idea is, the way you come against that is replacing the bad bees, um, the damaging beliefs, 
with the life-affirming bees, good beliefs. And there's a great book out there. It's called Telling Yourself the Truth. And it's written by, uh, it's, it's written by two authors, William Backus, who was a Christian psychologist, and another woman named Marie Chapian, who was a, a, a women's rights speaker or, or something of that, that effect. But it's a really short book. It's a national bestseller. You only read the first three chapters. And then after that, you read whatever chapter in the book um, aligns with where you are, but they have something that's called misbelief therapy. And it's basically following Albert Ellis's ABC method. And it's a three-step process. Number one is L, uh, locate the lies you're telling yourself. The sec second step is remove them. The third step is replace them with the truth. Um, and here's the thing. They said, as you do this, you actually change your brain chemistry. You carve new neural pathways in your mind. Because um, none of mm -hmm. us think we're lying to ourselves, right? Um, you know, we think we're telling ourselves the truth. Um, but as we get better at identifying what the lies are and arguing against them forcefully, we start to create new neural pathways. Now, this is a really long-winded way. Where are you going with all this? Where I'm going with all this is because the things that you're telling me right now the things that I hear you saying is always feeling like a load of crap. It makes me feel this way. I wasn't even good enough with what happened. You know, like my dad wasn't even good enough for my dad to stick around. That's your lies. It's not merely those events that are making you feel like you are. It's what you're telling yourself in here about them. And this is where you have to fight against them. And one of the passages in the Bible that I love that I think is a very cognitive passage we find it in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter four, six through nine. And in this one, Paul is talking about anxiety. Um, and what he says there is be anxious for nothing. I'm just gonna kind of try to repeat it the best I know off the top of my head, but in everything, um, with prayer and thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, Whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is good, whatever, think on such things and continue to do so. Now, here's the deal. Here's what was so great about this. Because for me, years ago, when I took this class from Habermas, I was telling myself a lot of lies. I have an autoimmune issue. Um, and I still don't know really what it is, but it, sometimes it gives me brain fog. I feel like I have flu-like symptoms. And I remember at the time it started hitting, I'm thinking life is over. I, I don't feel like, I don't even feel like doing the stuff I used to love. And then I'm thinking, who's gonna wanna be with me? Who's gonna wanna marry me? Um, this is crippling. You no, know, so this is the stuff I'm telling myself in my head. You know, so his class was a real help to me. But one of the things we learned from that passage in, in Philippians, Paul tells us to pray. We're like, okay, yeah, great. Give my anxiety to the God. Yeah, he gives it right back to me. Yeah, try again, try something else. And I remember Habermas asking us, how many of us do that second ingredient? It says prayer and thanksgiving. How many of us make that a pivotal component of our prayers? And he says, let me ask you guys something. He says, how many of you guys, during a time of emotional upheaval, have you ever spent 10 concentrated minutes on, pray, on, on thanking or praising God? Is I'm not talking haphazardly when you're watching TV or whatever, but just really 10 concentrated minutes. 
what happens to your negative emotions? What happens to your upheaval, your anxiety? And every, all of us are just like, it, 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 it dissipates. It's like, yes. How often do we make that a vital component in, in the way that we think? You know, the way that we pray to God. And that passage where it says the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word for guard there is it's like a military term. And it, the idea is it's, it creates, the Holy Spirit creates a fortress around your mind. But that's not enough. Paul's, Paul goes on to say, whatever is good, noble, praiseworthy, and true, think on such things. That's where the misbelief therapy comes in. That's where the cognitive part comes in. Um, and that's kind of what William Backus and Marie Chapian are talking about where you do this process, where you locate the lies you're telling yourself. When you feel these feelings of emotional upheaval, stop yourself and ask yourself, what did I just think? You know, and you'll know when you get it because it'll either hit you like an exposed nerve in your tooth, you'll feel that upheaval again as soon as you locate what it is, or you can just ask one of your family members, believe me, they'll tell you. Um, you know, what lies am I telling myself? They won't hesitate, trust me. Um, but then you forcefully argue against them. You say, that's not true. What happened to my dad was horrible. It was not because he didn't love me. It was not because he thought I wasn't worth staying around. What those other people told me when my father died, maybe I didn't pray hard enough or he believed the wrong things and that's why he went. That's a load of crap. And here's why. And that's when you take yourself back to God's word and you say, God says this, you say this, but he says this. Who am I going to listen to? Him. And it's, this is simple, but it's not easy, right? Because when we're having these feelings, we just want to passively acquiesce to them. Um, am I making any sense? Am I kind of just rambling? Am I perfect sense. And actually, it's funny that you'd say that because, uh, well, two things. One, I started seeing a counselor shortly after his death. And one of the things that she has always told me is, um, like, she's really helped me, like, see, like, that isn't the truth. Like, when I would say those things about my dad or when I would remember things that people have said to me in the past, she goes, well, that's, that's actually not true. And what's funny is this lady's not even a Christian. But she's just like, that's not the truth of who you are. And um, so then she like challenges me, like every time you have those thoughts, every time you remember things that people said or things, you know, just anything, you just have to remind yourself that that's not true. And then she also has had me uh, like sit and meditate on the things that I am very thankful for that I do have in my life. And um, I think it made a huge difference. So it's really interesting to hear you say that because I do think that that is, that has been my truth and that has really helped me in this last year, year and a half that um, I, I didn't at first, but I, I know now that those things and those things were lies that I, that I just, I know they're not true. I mean, it's still a battle sometimes, but really, I really do like what you're saying. Yeah. And it, it, it'll, it'll be a fight, but all things excellent are difficult as they are rare. Um, anything good and worth it never comes easy. 
Um, so you're going to have to fight against that because that, that's, that's a, a negative mindset. And God knows I know what that's like because that's what I had to do with what I was going through with my autoimmune issues. Um, so, but, but the other thing I want to get back on, and I know earlier when I was kind of like, you were asking about Jesus, you know, how could it be you could take on human flesh or whatever? I want to talk about this too, because again, those type of questions, I'm not saying they're not important. They are. But the truth of Christianity doesn't hang on them, right? I may not be able to fully understand how my, the engine in my car works. It doesn't keep me from putting the key in the ignition so I can get from point A to point B. I may not understand fully how electricity works, but it doesn't keep me from turning my light switch on. The question is, where are you on the resurrection? Are, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross, is who he says he was, was the son of God and raised from the dead. If just that follows, if that's true, guess what? Christianity follows, regardless of whether you think the Bible's inerrant, regardless of whether you think, uh, you know, penal substitution or Christus Victor or some other theory of the atonement is true, uh, regardless of what you think of, you know, order of creationism, regardless of whether, whether you think one book of the Bible is this genre versus that one, if he raised from the dead, it follows. The rest is in-house debate. That's so funny that you'd say that because, okay, so if you ask me that, I'll, I would say yes to all those things. Like, yes, I do believe that Jesus was the son of God. I do believe in his divinity. I do believe he died on the cross and I do believe in the resurrection. But obviously I've had a lot of questions and I remember talking to a, a well, at the time, he was a pretty close friend of mine, and he also was, for a season of my life, I would have said he was not, him and his wife were my pastors, but um, I remember, this has been a few years now, but I remember talking to him about penal substitutionary atonement, and I remember thinking, like, yeah, I just, just kind of wonder about this, and uh, this is kind of what I think, and uh, he actually said to me that he didn't think I was saved because I was thinking that. And so it's really funny, like, it's funny, but it's also encouraging to hear you say that because when he told me that for a couple of years now, I'm like, oh, well, maybe I'm not Christian then. Cause I don't know if I buy into theory, but, but like, yeah, like the question I was gonna ask you was like, what do you think Christianity hangs on? And if you think it's then the divinity of Jesus, that he was the son of God, that he did die on the cross and that he was raised from the dead, then yeah, I definitely believe all those things. If you ever want to go right where it says in scripture, there are several times in scripture where Paul tells us what we need to believe, what we need to do to be saved. One of the paradigm case example passages is found in uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 10, nine, uh, chapter 10, verse nine. It says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, period. That's it. Death, deity, resurrection. Those are, those are the things that one needs to believe to be in right relationship with God. See, and you get all three in that passage. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now the word Lord can mean several things. It can mean sir, right, or master. It can also mean, you know, the Greek word kurios is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. So which way is Paul meaning it? Well, as you read there, then in verse 13, he says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. What does he say in verse, verse 13? Make sure I'm not lying to you. Hold on. Yeah, verse 13, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, that verse is quoting from Joel 2, 32. Lord in that passage is referring to Yahweh. So it's almost like Paul is saying, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And by the way, in case you want to know what I mean by Lord, I mean Jehovah, right? So Jesus is God and he died and rose again. That's God's part of the equation. Our part of the equation is the part that I like to think of as us saying, I do. Have you said, I do to Jesus? Like when we get married, you know, when someone gets married to somebody, they commit to them. They say, I do. They can know everything about that person backward and forward. But if they don't say, I do, then the laws of the state and the laws of God, they're not married to that person, even though they may know them better than anybody else in the world. So there's that transaction that something needs to happen. And that's what I call the I do part. Um, but as long as you believe the death, deity, resurrection of Jesus, and you've put your trust in him and the perfect life that he lived on your behalf and the death he died in your place, regardless of what theory of the atonement you, you think makes most sense, what matters, what's central to the Christmas, the Christmas, the Christian faith is that you affirm the fact of the atonement. Um, Regardless, I don't think any of us have an exhaustive, cor exhaustively correct understanding of everything going on behind the scenes in the atonement. Um, I do think penal substitution makes the best sense of the biblical data. However, um, other people in the church, some, some, don't, some, don't, some don't believe that. They believe in Christus Victor, that Jesus saved us by virtue of conquering Satan, death and evil on the cross. And that's how he does people used to believe in ransom theory that Jesus's life was paid as a ransom to Satan, like much like someone would to a terrorist in a hostage situation um, and you, to free us. You really don't think that which atonement matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It's important, but I'm saying there's different levels of mattering, right? Um, my point is, do I really think that someone's going to go to hell because they're more persuaded by Christus Victor than penal substitution? Are you kidding me? No. Because people have to Not at all. <laughs> so no. it's encouraging to hear you say that. I mean, we can still talk through it. I still think it's important, but I'm just saying it's not a salvation issue in terms of the theory you embrace. It's a it's a secondary, secondary importance. I'm not saying it's not important. Go ahead. Um, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask a question because I agree with everything you're saying, Ellen, and I, I love this conversation. Um, but what element of following Jesus after we believe has to do with our salvation? Because Jesus said repeatedly, right, follow me. Yes. Um, you know, and, and when I think of the Christian walk, I think of this element of a daily surrender, right? Like I, because I believe, therefore now, like what you were saying, obey. It's not, yeah. um, I see him for who he is. Now I surrender fully in that and imperfectly, but fully, like I want to be all in for you, Jesus, yeah. right? Yeah. And there are quite a few times that Jesus says things in the gospels where when people aren't willing to surrender all the way, like you know, he says some, he has some harsh words for that. So how do you reconcile that with salvation? Is that one of those secondary things? Or because I've wrestled with that, I think, well, Lord, I want to be all in because I don't want to be the goats and the sheep yeah. on the goat side, right? You yeah. know, and that's a reference to a Bible story, but 
Yeah, I, I, I think, um, and you can tell me, you can tell me if I'm tracking well with you, you know, I think that I think the difference <laughs> is really what you think faith is, what saving faith is, right? Mm-hmm. Is it just agreeing with the facts? Well, Satan agrees with the facts, right? I used to when right. I used to teach um, high schoolers, and I, I, I got this from a, 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 a somebody named Tim Stratton, I, I think puts out good work right now. But um, Oh, how did he put it? He said, uh, long, long, long story short, um, there was a, there was a nice, neat little acronym I would put on the board. And I would say, okay, is it enough just to agree that the gospel is true? And they're like, well, no. And I'm like, no, that's, that's not enough. Even Satan believes the gospel is, is true, right? Um, is, it, is, it enough, uh, is it enough just to proclaim it? No. Um, the key comes in with the word trust. Mm. The word faith in Greek is the Greek word pistis. Um, what that means is the best way I know how to describe it in our own modern understanding is active trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. Right. And so what that means is that if you really have faith and kind of like C.S. Lewis said, he says, it makes no, even in normal everyday conversation, it makes no sense to say, I trust somebody, but not to ever follow their advice. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes no sense for me to profess Jesus, but then live any old way I want to and just ignore him. Um, if I only obey him when it's convenient for me, I'm not really obeying him. I'm just doing what I want. Um, you know, I, I like it this way. I, I think of saving faith as living a life of believing loyalty. So let me give an analogy. I often like to give this analogy. When I was single, I kind of did whatever I want. I would, I would date, you know, who I wanted to go out with the guys at night, whatever. When I get married, all of that changes, right? I'm not just gonna go out and do anything. I'm certainly not gonna go and date anybody, right? But what would you think of somebody who says, I love my wife, but then goes out and dates other people, stays away from them long hours every night and stuff like that. Do they really love them? They might say they do, but do they really? You know, so. And I think that's what James talks about when he says faith, if not accompanied by action, is dead. He's talking about in that sense, right? Now, keep in mind, that doesn't mean perfection, right? My wife's going to screw up against me sometimes. I'm going to screw up against her. You know, I, you know we're, we're finite. We're fallible. But still, you can, you can still tell there's a difference, right? You might even have somebody who's enough of a knucklehead that he cheats on his wife and his wife is gracious enough to take him back, mm-hmm. right? But it'd be a quite a different matter if he's like, oh, okay, you forgive me? Oh, great. I'm going to go out again. Let's see. I'll, I'll go out with this girl and that girl or whatever. That's not relationship. That's blasphemous. So I think that's part of what Jesus means by, by your fruit, you will know them. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and that's part of what repentance means too. People think repentance and obedience are synonymous. They're not. Jesus tells us to um, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So if the, that tells me right away that producing fruit part, the good actions, is not the same thing as repentance. Repentance is an inward atti- attitude. It's changing your orientation from sin to God. That's what repentance is. And if you're constantly doing that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change the way that you live. Um, does, that, does that help answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Because when I think of, I mean, for me, I, 
I love that you, uh, the, the way your mind thinks, Alan, it's so great. But And Tori, too, both of you are major thinkers. <laughs> but I'm like, you know, I tend to be more of that emotional doubter when I go through seasons of doubt and stuff. And um, doubter. And I, for me, what anchors me so often is the commandments that Jesus gave, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. So for me, that's like a surrender, right? Because I don't know how to love God all the way, but I'm like, I just want to be fully uh, in you. I want to love you with all my heart. Show me how, you know, like Tom, I think it was Thomas, like we believe Lord help us with our unbelief. Yeah, I can't get it right, but I want it. And then when I look at him, I see myself because the next commandment, it's implicit, right? That you'll love uh, your neighbor as yourself. I know who I am when I look at him. And then, you know, then I'm able to love other people in the command that he gave me. And so, um, but I do, I feel like when I was younger, you know, and, and feeling a lot of those legalistic tendencies of, oh, I just need to be good enough. I just need to be good enough. Um, it's really helped me to think of the Christian walk as just being a daily surrender and saying, Jesus, I trust you. Help me, uh, help me, help me today. I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. It's a really simple faith in a lot of ways. And it really has very little to do with anything, (laughs) anything that I do except for that surrender piece. So, yeah. Sorry to throw that in there, but I just want to Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. Um, what what other what what other what other things are on your mind, Tori? Um, um, well, I I have thought a lot about like the penal substitutionary atonement theory. Um, I oh gosh, let me think about which one I want to talk about most. <laughs> we can totally still talk through that. Okay. Just understand that. <laughs> It doesn't mean that you're going to hell if you're not convinced of a particular atonement theory. As long as, I mean, think about the thief mm-hmm. on the cross, honestly. Um, he didn't know anything about any of that. He just put his trust in Jesus, the best that he understood him. He said, he turned to the other thief and he goes, stop mocking him. This man has done no wrong. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus says, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, did this man have any time to know anything about a virgin birth? Did he have any time to know about the hypostatic union? Did he have any time to know about penal <laughs> substitution? That it's that the, the dual nature of Christ is a hypostatic union. Did he have any time to learn about um, uh, penal substitutionary atonement or ransom theory or any of that? No, no, he didn't. Um, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying those things are not important. They are important. I'm just saying they're not salvation issues. Your salvation is secure by virtue of what Jesus did for you. Um, if you, and I've always said this to people, if you want to, if you want a religion that has a very easy entry, entry point, a simple entry point, the gospel message, but is robust and complex enough to keep you busy asking, asking intellectual questions the rest of your life, welcome to Christianity. <laughs> All right. Um, don't confuse the core death, deity, resurrection with other issues that are secondary or tertiary. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. yeah that's great I mean that's really good to hear you say that because sometimes I just think like people go into like these detailed intellectual philosophical conversations as to why Jesus died and sometimes I think it's like really simple like Jesus died because we killed him <laughs> really I mean 
he murdered him so like isn't it can't it just be that simple and then he turned it into something beautiful but like uh so I sometimes just like i ponder that often and i've pondered it a lot and like read a lot of different perspectives and theories on atonement where, where like, are you now I've, where where are you now which one did you find most persuasive now uh, i don't know if i would like I don't know if I would like identify with a certain one. I think that this, I guess in a nutshell, this is what I think right now. I think that Jesus died because we killed him and he turned his death into like this beautiful monument of grace and he turned it into something wonderful. Um, I don't think that God designed the cross. I don't think it was ever part of his plan, but I think he anticipated it maybe is how I would put it. Um, so let me ask you this, because this might, maybe this needs to be talked about. What is your understanding of God's providence? Do you know what I mean by providence? How God orders things. How God orders the events of history, right? I mean, because we're told in no uncertain terms in the Bible that God brought this about, but in what sense brought this about, right? The reason I'm asking that is because if you've been around a more Calvinist understanding, not that all Calvinists embrace this, but most do, then you're gonna believe that God has causally determined everything that happened, kind of like a cosmic puppet master pulling strings, right? Um, yeah. And that if God brought about the crucifixion, that's how he brought it about, like actually worked it into people, right? Um, mm -hmm. Is that kind of where the difficulty's coming from? I don't know. I mean, I definitely, honestly, like, I don't think I agree with, I don't, I would not in any way, shape or form consider myself a Calvinist. And that's definitely the culture that I grew up in, but I don't. Yeah, I same really here. Don't. I was a Calvinist for, for 16 years. Um, a very adamant one. Yeah. Um, not anymore. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't think I would uh, align with almost anything in that theology. Uh, I guess I'm not totally understanding your question. So what exactly are you asking me? I'm asking, do you think God causes people to do things? Oh, uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. Because I'm thinking if you think he causes them, like he causes people to do things, he causes people to desire, think, or act in such a way that they couldn't do otherwise. Um, oh, yeah, I know. That's Definitely. okay. All right. Because I was going to say, I hold a view, um, and I, I think it's a biblical view, that God's totally omniscient. He knows all things. But theologians back in the day used to talk about different aspects of his knowledge. They had what was called God's natural knowledge. He knows everything at once, but still he has what's called his natural knowledge, which is his knowledge of everything that could happen, his knowledge of all possibilities. And then you have what's called his free knowledge, his knowledge of everything that will happen. You might call that his foreknowledge. But in the middle of those two types of knowledge, and it's why it's called this, is what's called his middle knowledge. That's his knowledge of everything that would happen in various circumstances. And by God being equipped with this type of knowledge, 
God can know exactly what's going to happen, but he can arrange the circumstances and put people in them, knowing certainly what they're freely going to do. And in that sense, he has tremendous providential control down to like the last detail. But human freedom is kept intact. Um, I would say that I would agree with that. Because I think that like, I definitely am of the perspective that we absolutely fundamentally have free will. And I think that we do have freedom. And I think if, like, I think if you align yourself with Calvinistic theology, then I don't know, it seems like some people are coerced to love him and that's not love at all. And like, I think that, yeah, I would a hundred percent agree with what you just said, actually. Like, and, and, and again, I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there, but again, even keep that in mind someone's view of providence whether they're a calvinist whether they're uh, arminian a molinist or whatever the heck they are that's what's saving them is not their view of omniscience or providence it's still death deity resurrection um can i just ask maybe a clarifying question here so something that tori and i have talked about is like is it possible uh that and this is something she's brought up like that we misunderstand why Jesus came, uh, that maybe, uh, you know, he showed us what it could look, and Tori, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong at uh, characterizing this, but like that he, you know, showed us w- w- all these, all this goodness and that really, um, and, and I know you've addressed, you know, in a sin nature and all that stuff, but could you just really clearly, Alan, share, like, why do we need a savior? And yeah. what do you believe Jesus did when he died on the cross? Yes, we'll do. Um, I believe that I, I, I believe in that man has fallen. And I believe that when Adam and Eve fell, that we inherit Adam's sinful nature. Um, and therefore we are all guilty of sin because we in, in inevitably follow through with that nature. Um, and so the idea is, you notice sometimes Paul talks about Jesus being the second Adam. I also look at it this way. Adam is our representative of the human race, much in the same way that we in Congress will choose someone to be our our representative, our proxy, such that when they vote, um, they are voting on our behalf. Their vote is our vote. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think Jesus came to be our new representative, our new Adam, so to speak. And what he did is he lived an entire life sinless, which is what we were supposed to do to receive the, the, the covenant blessings. We were never able to do that. So he did it in our stead. God, the second person of the, the Trinity became a human being to do what we couldn't do. And so, cause a lot of times, if you'll ask like a, if you'll ask like a kid in Sunday school, you know, what did Jesus do? Well, he came to die for us. He's like, well, yeah, that is an integral part of what he did, but that's not all he did. If all Jesus had to do was die for us to secure our redemption, to secure our salvation, And he could have just came down from heaven on a parachute, went to the cross, and that's it. But instead, he lived an entire life under the law, and he did it perfectly, right? And one of the things that we're told, even in the Old Testament, is God by no means will clear the guilty. We know that he's perfectly loving, but we also know he's perfectly just, right? And see, here's the thing. A lot of times people, when they think of justice, they think that it's it's a, or when they think of mercy, pardon me, They think mercy is a relaxation of justice or a compromise of justice. But here's the thing. If God's justice is a divine attribute, 
it can no more be compromised than his love can. Um, my, my, my friend Chan, I know who you've had on this before. He, yeah. he put it this way. He says, he says, think of it this way. When a police officer pulls you over um, for speeding, he can do one of two things. He can give you justice and give you the ticket, or he can show you mercy by not giving you the ticket, but he can't do both. God, who is necessarily just and necessarily loving, must do both. So how does that work, right? Well, enter the crucifixion. Jesus becomes our new sacrificial lamb, right? As our representative, he suffers the penalty that, is, that was ours. I like to put it this way. Um, uh, John Stott put it this way. I like to put it, you know, Jesus um, voluntarily took upon himself um, to endure the suffering that would have been our punishment for our sins if it were inflicted upon us. Um, and you can think of this a number of different ways. You know, like um, some people talk about the uh, concept of vicarious liability, um, you know, in the legal system where, you know, you have a superior that ends up imputing the guilt or the penalty for the subordinate. So like in, in a company, like an employer, if one of their employers, employees does something wrong, um, the guilt gets imputed to the employer, even though they didn't do the act themselves, just by virtue of the relationship they have. That's one way to think of it. I think another, I think another way to think of it is that of like being a guarantor, um, being a co-signer or whatever. Let's say that you want to take a you know, want to take out a loan, but you you can't do it. But someone else who's a friend of yours is a billionaire, and they're your guarantor, such that if you default, they'll pay it for you. And I kind of see that's what God did. See, a lot of people misunderstand it when they think we, you know, God doesn't forgive us except on the basis of what Jesus did. You know, like, so you're basically saying God's like a mob boss, you know, and I'm going to break your legs. Okay, fine. I'll break Jesus's legs, right? That's the idea. That's not the way to think of it. First of all, you can't pit Jesus against God like they're not the same being, right? Um, you know, there was, if you ever wonder this, um, there was a doctrine the Jews had. It was called doctrines of the two powers in heaven. Um, it was the idea that in the Old Testament, this idea of, of God and Jesus both being God is not a new idea. You find it all throughout the Old Testament. You find what they would call the visible Yahweh and the invisible Yahweh. So like when Abraham's getting ready to sacrifice his son Isaac, the angel of the Lord came and said, stop. I know now that you fear God because you wouldn't even withhold your son from me, Right. Um, you find it with Moses in the burning bush, the angel of the Lord called within the burning bush. But then once it's speaking, it's basically saying, I am God. You find this in other passages where it says Yahweh rained down sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh, um, where you find this, you know, juxtaposition. Or when Jacob is blessing, you know, um, Joseph's sons, and he's saying things like, you know, to the God of my forefathers, you know, to the angel who led me out, thanks be to him. This idea of the angel of God was God in his visible form. Um, so the visible and invisible Yahweh, it's why you have in Jude chapter five, Jude actually comes out and says, Jesus led them uh, through the promised land from Egypt. That's why. Um, so this idea is not a new idea. The idea was Jesus is the angel of God that we've been reading about in the Old Testament. He is God. That God you have, he's one in being, but he's three in persons. You know, your, uh, your being is that quality or essence that makes you what you are. A person is that quality or essence that makes you who you are. Like, what am I? I'm, I'm, I'm a human being. 
Who am I? I'm Alan Crostick. God is one in being, but has three sets of rational faculties, each sufficient for personhood. So three persons in one being. We don't know exactly how all that works out. I can apprehend it, but I can't comprehend it, right? But we even see things like this in the created world, like when you go on the microscopic or macroscopic level, things that seem to defy our normal categories. But you have to understand, Jesus is God. It's not like this is somebody else taking our punishment. It's God himself saying, I'm going to take it for you. One of the best passages I like in the Old Testament is Genesis chapter 15, where God has just finished telling Abraham, you know, he's given him the promise, you will become a father of many nations, you will inherit the land and so forth. And Abraham goes, how do I know, how do I know this is going to be the, the case? And God gives him a signal, which alerts Abraham to take a bunch of animals, cut them up, line up two rows of carcasses. And you're wondering, what does this have to do with anything? And then you see this image of a fire pot and a torch going down the two uh, aisles of, of carcasses. And you're like, what is going on? Well, back then, someone would have known what this is. When you enter into a covenant relationship with somebody back in the day, you would do this little ceremony like this as a way of kind of showing how serious you were about the terms of the covenant. What the person would do is they would cut up these animals and they would walk in between the animals. And it was basically like them saying, if I don't fulfill my terms of the covenant, may I be ripped apart like these animals, hmm. right? And what was so amazing is because in that passage in Genesis, darkness came down and then um, Abraham saw that torch and fire pot which many theologians think it represents God maybe in some way, like kind of like the Shekinah glory cloud or something of that nature. And it went through the carcasses. It was basically like God was saying, if I don't fulfill my terms of the covenant, may I be ripped apart like these animals. God, in some sense, we don't understand, was almost like promising to die. And the thing that shocks theologians is that in that passage, he never required Abraham to walk in between the carcasses. So it was almost like God is saying, if I don't fulfill the terms of the covenant, may I be ripped apart like these animals. But not only that, if you don't fulfill the terms of the covenant, may I be ripped apart. If you don't do your job, I will do that. Well, flash forward hundreds of years later, darkness comes down again on Calvary. And there's God in the person of Jesus Christ literally being ripped apart on our behalf. And I remember the first time I heard that, I'm like, wow, I never looked at that, that way before. Um, so in him, he pays our debt. See, the, the other, the other, um, the other uh, theories of atonement, I think they all represent facets of the truth. I don't think any one of them are false. I think they're all true. Um, you know, ransom theory, God, you know, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. We're, we're told that. Did Jesus overcome Satan, death, and hell? Yes, he did. Um, the moral influence theory, does seeing what he did for us, does that, does, that, does that do something in me that makes me want to live for him? Yes. Um, satisfaction theory, um, has, God, has God, his holiness and justice been satisfied by virtue of this? Yes. Um, the thing I see about penal substitution is if he really is our sacrificial lamb, I can see how that absolves our guilt. The other ones I see take care of the consequences of sin, 
but they don't purge us from our sin. Like you saw they, that what happened in those Levitical sacrifices in Leviticus, how they would sacrifice the animal, which was symbolic of that animal taken on our sins and dying on our behalf. He did that for us. Um, and so it's not a matter of, you know, Jesus is doing this. God himself in Jesus is doing this. It hurt the father as much as it hurt the son. And what's amazing is when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And where he quotes the suffering servant. Many people believe it's at that moment he's really experiencing what, what we would probably call hell, right? Mm -hmm. Where God has like withdrawn the beatific vision. Um, so as a result of what he did, the perfect life he lived gets imputed to me and my sins and the penalty that was mine to pay is imputed to him. And so placing my trust in him, I'm seen as clean in God's eyes. And I remember one time Peter Kraft saying this, he says, you know, I, he's a philosopher that teaches at Boston college. He says, every year I ask this question to my students, he, he's Catholic. And he says, in Boston, there's a lot of Catholics. And he says, I'll ask them in a survey. He says, if you were in front of the gates of heaven and God says, why should I let you in? How would you answer? Now, he says, almost every Protestant knows the right answer to that question. He says, but I get answers like, I've tried to be good. Um, I hope I've lived a good life. Or I don't know, please be merciful. He said, but the fact that Jesus is never even mentioned is the primary scandal. He's, you know, and, and Kraft goes on to say, he says, you know, believe me, he says, I, I believe that Catholicism is just as Christ-centered as modern-day Protestantism is. He says, but, he says, pastorally speaking, all the food is not always put on the plate. So many people don't know the fundamental message of the gospel. So the right answer to that question, if, if someone was asked that, is, you know, God, on one hand, there's no reason you should let me into your heaven, except that I've put my trust in Jesus Christ. And the perfect life he lived on my behalf and the death he died in my place. Because I know there's nothing I can do to make up for my sins. Um, Tori, you had a question. Oh, I, I, it was more of a comment. And it was back when you were talking about the, all the different theories. I, um, one thing I've kind of wondered about is that doesn't really make sense to me is um Oh, I know this sounds crazy, but I, I, I don't really feel, I feel like I struggle with the thought that Jesus was abandoned at the cross. I don't think that our sin is enough to separate the Trinity. And I think that also scripture supports that because like the Bible does say God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. I don't like the idea that like Jesus was abandoned because I, I don't think that, I don't think, I, I know that you could like, you're probably going to have you know, scriptures and evidence to maybe disprove that opinion I have. But I think that, uh, yeah, it just doesn't really make sense to me that like Jesus was completely left alone. Cause I don't think that God would have done that. That's I think that goes against the character and nature of God. And also Paul writes, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Yeah. And I agree with all that. And I understand your question. I think it's a valid question to ask, but that's why I was very careful to say God withdrew his beatific vision from Jesus, with respect to Jesus's, um, you know, what he could see in terms of his human nature. Um, what does that mean? 
What does that mean? With respect to his human, <laughs> what the beatific vision? Yes. Or someone has a what? Someone has a for sorry. someone like me. Um, you know, it's funny. You get used to all these uh, this Christianese language over the years. These five dollar terms, and sometimes they just become so one hundred and one that you just you, you kind of forget sometimes. Which once you kind of need to kind of elaborate a little bit on. That's one's direct experience of God. All the direct experience of the His blessedness and glory and all of that just a, a direct apprehension of it, right? Um, that would be the beatific vision. But it in no way separated, sliced apart the members of the Trinity. It, it didn't. Um, you know, so I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Um, but I think it can result in that type of experience for one of the persons of the Trinity. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, so like, yeah, I think it does. So do you think that like when the Bible says that God turned his face away. What does that mean to you? Um, depending on what you mean in which context, um, like in some of the, uh, in some of the, uh, the Old Testament passages, um, God turned his face away. I mean, that God withdrew his favor from somebody. God re re uh, withdrew his, that sense of his presence from somebody um, can mean, mean something like that. Sometimes it'll have language like God sets his face against somebody, like he is determined and, you know, against, opposes this person. Mm -hmm. So you have this kind of metaphorical language. See, that's one of the problems with the metaphorical language. At what point does the imagery line up with the ontological reality, the reality of what's going on behind the scenes? Um, so that sometimes can kind of get people confused as well. Um, hmm. That's interesting. I, I think... Yeah, it's interesting. I think I like all that you have to say. I think, I don't know if I'll stay here forever, but I think that sort of what I think right now is um, like, what if, I don't know, like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to say this because like, I'll, I think I'm gonna say this and you're gonna be like, oh, maybe the atomic theory does matter because this is crazy. But um, okay. I feel like, what if we weren't ever in debt? What if like the fall caused us to like believe these lies that we were separated, believe that we were terrible? And like, what if we like, what if the fall was like our belief in that, the fact that we thought that we were separated and Jesus came to say, no, like none of that's true. And uh, then we didn't like that. So we killed him. And then he turned the cross into this beautiful icon and monument of grace to the point where we wear crosses around our necklaces, our necks and on rings when really like the cross was a terrible torture device. And um, yeah, like, I guess like, what if that's the gospel, <laughs> if that makes any sense so, to you? Notice the what if questions you're asking. Here's my question to you. Do you have any evidence to show that's true? Well, I feel like I feel like there's scripture that supports that, but then I also feel like there's scripture that doesn't. So So here's here's why I asked, you know, where are you on the resurrection and where are you on Jesus? Because we can show by applying the standards of history that Jesus died. That's about as sure as a historical fact you can ever get, right? We know what his radical self-understanding of himself was. He thought of himself as deity. And I can take you to passages there. 
not assuming inerrancy of scripture. Now I affirm inerrancy of scripture, but if I approach it like a historian, I can show you why any historian should affirm that and does affirm that. Um, and the same thing with the resurrection, that's very powerful. But here's the thing, if Jesus rose from the dead, what that tells you is that you gotta pay attention to what he said and what he believed. And one of the things Jesus wholeheartedly believed was the Old Testament. And he affirmed the idea that we are separated from God and that he is, what he was doing was necessary to bring us to God. I mean, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the things he prayed, because he knew it was necessary, was, God, if this cup can be passed from me, please let it happen. But yet not my will, but your will. You know, and if anybody can look at that and think, well, you know, this was against God's will for it to happen. Uh-uh. Um, or even like when Peter tried to oppose him, when Jesus told Peter, you know, it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to uh, be killed. It's, it's the son of man is going to be betrayed and fall into the hand of sinners. And Peter came against him. He's like, never. And Jesus said, you know, um, get away from me, Satan. I'm like, dang. Now, most historians, even who aren't Christians, it seems to me, would say that's probably historical, even if they didn't believe the rest of it was. Because there's various criteria that historians apply to a text uh, are called the criteria of authenticity. That in the presence of these criteria, it makes what's mentioned in that text a lot more likely to be historical. Um, one, of those, one of those is what's called the criterion of embarrassment. In other words, does an instance in the text come across embarrassing or make it awkward? The idea is if someone's just making up this story, the last thing you're gonna wanna do is have one of the pillars of the Christian church, AKA Peter, in a passage rebuke Jesus and then Jesus call him Satan. Um, so most people are like, that's counterproductive. That's more than likely historical and really happened. So all throughout, Jesus has this idea of like, this has got to happen. And we know what Jesus's view of scripture is. That's why I keep coming back to where are you on the resurrection? Because once you establish that, everything else follows. Mm -hmm. um, see, at the end of the day, though, one of the, I mean, there's lots of things that I feel. But at the end of the day, we got to make sure that what we believe, that our beliefs are proportioned by the evidence. Um, feelings are wonderful, but they mean exactly jack swat when it comes to evaluating a truth claim. Um, and you'll find a lot of times, even like in the regular world, people get, you know, like warm and fuzzy when it comes to like spiritual matters, like, you know, heaven. I think everyone goes to heaven or whatever. And it's this idea that they don't, they're fine with the idea that reality doesn't give a rip about what you think or prefer in every other realm. But when it comes to spiritual reality, it's like they fall back into what's called the teenager philosophy, that truth is directly proportional to what I want truth to be or what I feel it to be. But why, why I think spiritual reality is any different? You know, if I'm driving down the road and I see a tree in front of me, and I tell myself, well, it's just not meaningful or makes me feel good to believe there's a tree in front of me. That tree's going to kill me. Um, reality is reality. Um, and I think we have good historical evidence, even if you're not assuming inerrancy, 
that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, believed himself to be God, and had a high view of scripture. Um, yeah, I don't so, agree with that. So, and I only brought that up because you brought up like the what if. When it comes down to it, you can what if anything. Um, but what if questions have no evidential value? No. Um, I mean, I could say, well, what if you have a tumor? I have no reason to think I do. Yeah, but what if? You know, um, I like telling people this sometimes, just because it's possible for you to be mistaken, it doesn't follow that it's reasonable for you to think that you are. Um, possibilities come cheap. What matters is what's plausible or probable. Tori, how are you feeling about this conversation? Because I know you've had people in the past where you've asked questions. And I know you mentioned even one when we were recording the first episode saying, like, if you don't believe this way, then, <laughs> like, you're wrong. Is this triggering any of that for you, this conversation here right now? Are you feeling like you can express your your questions and doubts in a safe way? Or is this, I just am wondering how this is yeah. coming across to you. And I um, hope it's not. If I've made that come on, my, my apologies. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, no, I just want to double check for someone listening. Yeah. I think it's an important yeah. check-in. That's a great question. I think that this is definitely the most intense conversation we've had on the show, <laughs> like of our recordings. Um, yeah, I mean, it's you're so intellectual and you have obviously decades probably of knowledge behind you that I definitely don't have. So I feel like... Uh, Maybe I'm a little bit afraid to ask questions because I know that you're going to probably combat. I'm like, it. what do you mean by decades? How old do you think I am? I, I don't know how <laughs> well, to feel about this. Said for 25 years, you've been <laughs> a Christian, so <laughs> right? Did you, did you say that at one point? Yeah, I often. I, I think I said that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, <laughs> so yeah, I I know that like some of the things I think I just. I feel like I think they might be right. And I, I guess I'm maybe brave enough to explore them because I don't want to be wrong. And I think it kind of maybe, uh, you know, I think there are, I think people feel a lot. And I think that people go along with that a lot because the implications of uh, the alternative are like not very fun. Like I, I talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but um like I struggle with the idea of hell. So okay. I really okay. don't want to believe that eternal conscious that. torment. And I so totally like, I, I don't really have evidence to support why I don't want to believe in hell, but I just really don't want to believe in it. Cause I don't really know what my dad believed. And so yeah. um, if this is all true, which I think obviously there's evidence that it is. Um, I don't want to believe in that part of it. I have no evidence to back me up. Like, I don't really have anything to support that theory. I just don't really want to believe otherwise because the implications are devastating. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like, you're very knowledgeable and you're very educated. And I know that you could, like, you know, you probably have answers to everything, every question I might have. But sometimes, I guess maybe part of me just doesn't want to know what you have to say. I, I, I can appreciate that. I totally get where you're coming from in that. And I, I totally understand that. 
what matters is that you, and what matters is death, deity, resurrection. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of hell as an in-house debate. And frankly, I can understand you not wanting to talk about it right now, given what happened. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't really want to talk about it because I don't know. And I think there's a huge part of me that doesn't really want to know. I don't really ever care to know. And uh, mm. yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like that's intellectually honest, right? To just yeah. say, hey, maybe I don't even really want to know right now. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, this conversation has been, like you said, Tori, uh, more uh, intense than some of the ones we've done before. But I think, I hope, I'll ask you this. Do you still feel, um, even in the midst of, Alan obviously has uh, wrestled with quite a few of these things. Do you feel like he still cares about you and that it's been out of a place of love that this conversation has taken place? Yeah, I, yes, I do feel that way. Yeah, because I feel like sometimes these kind of conversations can easily become like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. like, really. But I, I don't sense that. But I do know that there's been some moments that because I've been watching uh, your face, Tori, and I, I'm still far away from the screen here, but I can tell that there's been some parts that have been uncomfortable. And, um, and I just want to honor you and no one, no one can force you to come anywhere, right? And this has been a really, um, really precious thing to walk with you on um, this journey and to just kind of explore some of these different issues. And, um, and I, I think it was really, again, Alan, when you said, you know, like, that knowing that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, or knowing that God created you in his image, and like, believing that you have intrinsic value like that is totally a god like that is what the bible preaches right i mean yeah. that's that's true and when you got emotional tori um i i sense that maybe there was a sense like oh no i can't i need to hold on to that because that is where i found so much freedom but i would argue that maybe there's some i think that casey lander brought it uh, brought it up in our conversation with him like a, a case of bad theology there um, that really is not from Jesus because yeah. when we do see, wow, he loved, he loved me so much that he came for, for me, you know, that he, he wasn't content to leave me in this, you know, <laughs> this place where all this stuff happens, but he, he came on a rescue mission, really. Like, I don't know. It fills me. Um, and, and maybe, I hope someday for you, I don't know, but it fills me with so much love for him. And then in turn, so much love for who he made me to be. Um, and so I don't feel like a piece of crap. <laughs> and, you know, although I have struggled with that, because I think that sometimes the church gets that it's just a little off yeah. and just a little off. And that can be, Alan, you, you keep saying yes. So I want to let you jump in here and, uh, in, is what I'm saying, it's right on, right? Yeah, it's, That's it's true. totally right on. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I struggled with that for so long that God was just waiting to zap me. You know, um, um, it's interesting, you know, like Tori, I, I, the things that you were saying, you know, just feeling like crap. I get it. 
I, I really get it. Um, yeah, I, I, I believe me, I know where you're coming from, but it's kind of like, you know, like I shared earlier, it's, you have to recognize it for what it is. It's a lie. It's a lie, whether it become, whether it's coming from the, the theological circles you were in when you were growing up or whatever. And when those moments come up and you feel, find yourself thinking those things, you got to fight against it. Um, I, I really recommend that book. It's not a big book. It's uh, telling yourself the truth. Uh, the first three chapters is hardly anything. And then you just read the ones that pertain to you. But um, I think that could be helpful. Um, mm. yeah. Love that. Tori, do you have any final questions for Alan before we wrap up here? Um, I don't really think so. I mean, I think we've touched on some major ones that I've had for a long time. I have. Can I just ask? Oh, go ahead. Well, I have endless questions, but that would be a very long podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, Alan, I know you really care about this and you really, um, I think you really care about people. Uh, that's something that I see in your heart. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can't see your heart, but as it's been expressed on this podcast, I see that about you, that you really have a sense of, um, I mean, and you talked about it on the last podcast episode that we did, that people are not uh, disposable in the kingdom of heaven. People have such value. They have so much value. Yeah. And so I just want to ask you if at some point Tori wants to reach out and ask you some questions that she's struggling with, um, like emailing you or whatever, would that be something that you'd be okay? Well, of course. Can she yeah, email absolutely. you? Absolutely. No, I please anytime. That's, that's, that, that's, that, that, that's my passion. Um, helping people who are in a place like I used to be. Um, who just wasn't sure what I believed, what was true. But the, the thing is, Tori, after talking to you, um, I, I'm, first of all, I'm convinced a lot of the stuff you're dealing with um, from a theological perspective, like things like, you know, atonement or theory, whatever, I think are pseudo problems. It sounds like you believe the core. It sounds there's a lot of, like, maybe there's a lot of what if, what ifing going on. Um, and I think you just had, I think you've just had people that have s spoken lies to you in your past, but, um, I'm just sorry you had to go through that. I, I get it. Um, anyway, but yeah, any, in, any time, any question, whatever, feel free. Um, and again, Janelle, you were asking, you know, did, um, do you feel like you have a safe place? I, I, I hope, I hope I didn't make you feel like you don't. <laughs> no, I, um, I feel like I did. This was a safe place because yeah. I, unlike what you were saying earlier, like there were people who told me growing up that like did explicitly tell me questions are as bad as witchcraft. So I just didn't even feel like I could ask. Yeah, that makes no sense. Cause I don't know what they, I don't know what they do about that passage where John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus. I don't know what they do with that. Um, I like how Augustine puts it. Faith um, questions are is just a matter of faith seeking understanding. Um, I think that's the right way to look at it. Um, I mean, it, if I have a relationship with God, God, I don't get this. What is going on? What are you doing? 
I mean, all throughout scripture, you have people that are not only just asking questions, but actually angry with God. I'm, I'm not advising that's the right thing to do, but I mean, the, the patriarchs, um, you know, you have Jeremiah who's basically saying, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't question your, what, what, what I'm questioning is your goodness. I'm starting to wonder if you're good. Or the psalmist saying, you know, like, why are you always, leave, why are you doing this to us? I know what you're going to say because we disobeyed you, but we haven't. Wake up. I mean, you look at stuff like this and you're like, dude, wow. But they're in there for a reason because they reflect the human condition. We have this idea mm -hmm. that living the right Christian life is to be stoic. This idea that you're supposed to kind of put your emotions on the back shelf and just kind of, you know, be this cool, calm, collective person, just face everything steadfastly. We're not made that way. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, honestly, after everything that happened with your father, I almost think you'd be odd if you weren't asking these type of questions and you weren't feeling this way. So I think that I think that's normal. But I think the good thing is, is God gives us each other um, so we can help each other out when we are going through those times. Any final thoughts to that, Tori, or do you want me to ask the final question? I don't, I don't think you can ask the final question. Okay. All right. The Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards finding restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love in relationship with Jesus Christ. Of those gifts that I believe we can really fully find in relationship with Jesus, restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love, which of them stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? Um, I think right now I would probably, especially given the nature of this talk, I would have to go with authenticity. Um, because for me, it comes down to what is fundamentally real? What is true? Is this true? Because if it's true that Jesus came, is who he says he is, died and rose from the dead, that's everything. That means my entire life is missional. Um, my whole life is basically to point people to him because this life is just a blip on the radar screen. Um, we haven't we haven't seen anything yet um but yeah definitely the truth part it, it, it comes to authenticity I, I i value that more than anything well, well tori carpenter and alan crostick thank you both for being on here and sharing this really awesome conversation i really appreciate both of you tori I'm just really thankful for you, for your vulnerability, for your honesty, and um, for trusting this process. And I just thank you. Um, and, uh, and Alan, thank you so much for the time and the energy that you put into this, not just this recording right now. And for someone listening, you may not know this because this will be edited, but this was almost a two and a half hour conversation. And uh, it really... Uh, it really speaks a lot to uh, how much you value uh, your relationship with the Lord and with others. And I know that even this two and a half hour conversation was not all the the time and um, the effort that you put into this. I know that you spent quite some time. In fact, one of the things I just want to share for whoever's listening is that, Alan, you said to me, I want to do uh, Tory justice. 
Um, and I, I just really appreciate that, that you didn't want to come on here just to throw things at her or whatever, but you really wanted to uh, wrestle with the questions with her and, and uh, point her back to Jesus. And I just appreciate that about you and, and your ministry. And I just see God blessing that. So thank you so much. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting co-hosts to join me to share their personal stories and to ask their honest questions about the Christian faith. Each month, we hope to feature a different co-host and together invite guests on to share from their own faith journeys and experiences. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all about what's so great about Jesus, I hope you come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.